Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. Broadcaster James O'Brien has presented a morning phone-in show on UK radio station LBC for two decades now, interviewing politicians and debating the news stories of the day with his listeners. He came to real prominence in the lead-up to Brexit when he asked the questions that ordinary people wanted answered. Nigel Farage famously stormed out of his studio. He sparred with Jacob Rees-Mogg and he also presents a podcast called Full Disclosure, a series of in-depth interviews with famous contributors. Well, his newest book is called How They Broke Britain, and it's published by W.H. Allen. James O'Brien, good morning to you. Thank you, Miriam. What a lovely introduction. Ah, lovely to chat to you again. We'll chat about the book in a moment. I really enjoyed it, but there's so much going on in your country (laughs) this week alone. David Cameron is foreign secretary. What do you make of that appointment? Well, it smacks of desperation, uh, so much so that it's quite hard to work out exactly what Rishi Sunak is hoping for. Don't, don't forget that Cameron won quite a, an unexpected election victory in 2015 before all the all the real madness happened. And of course, he bears quite a lot of responsibility for what, what was ushered in as a consequence of that victory. So perhaps Sunak's hope is that some of that, um, uh, that those winning ways might rub off on him. And, and he also represents the pre-culture war incarnation of the Conservative Party. But, you know, in, in the same breath, as uh, appointing Cameron, he's he's still making these weird promises about Rwanda. So I don't know. Just just uh, maybe he just had a good look at the Parliamentary Conservative Party and concluded, with some justification, that there was absolutely nobody in it capable of holding high office. So he had to go. He had to go back to the to the fellow before. I've lost count. Actually, is he four four leaders ago? Four in four years, I think. And you mentioned, you know, the Rwanda plan there. And despite the Supreme Court declaring it illegal, he's hanging on to it. I mean, can you work out his rationale? Oh, it's very straightforward. Yes. All you do is pass a a motion in Parliament to redefine reality, Miriam. So if, for example, you wanted it to be a matter of historical fact that the moon is made of cheese, then you have a vote in Parliament (laughs) and you encourage your majority to vote in favour of a motion stating that the moon is made of cheese or the earth is flat. And then lo and behold, the moon becomes cheese and the earth becomes flat and Rwanda becomes safe. You don't need to worry about pesky, pesky judges and tests and checks and balances. Mind you, Keir Starmer, he's not having a fab time either. Resignations from his front bench over, you know, the party stands in Israel, Gaza and ceasefires. I mean, how much damage do you believe, James, has been done to Keir Starmer? I I don't think much damage has been done at all. Looking at the polls first and then at the ramifications. I had the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, on my radio show on, on Friday, who was one of the first senior Labour politicians to break cover and call for a ceasefire. There's certainly no rancour there. There there is no sense of, you know, deep fracture or or, or betrayal from either side towards the other. It's more more an atmosphere, I'd say, of of, of informed disagreement. He'll be annoyed, Starmer, that, that some of the resignations, and there'll be a suspicion that there's a little bit of constitution driven uh, self-interest there, I'd, I'd say, rather than grandstanding. Some of these uh, MPs will be very much keeping an eye upon the, the makeup of their own constituencies and, and, and making their decisions accordingly. But the difference, ultimately, between calling for a humanitarian ceasefire and calling for extended humanitarian pauses on the road towards a ceasefire 
is quite close to semantic. So what Starmer has done, I think, is lead as opposed to follow. And as a leader, he needs to be dealing in what famously, the famous description of politics as the art of the possible. And although Sadiq Khan disagreed with this when we spoke on Friday, I don't think at this point a leader of the opposition in this country calling for a ceasefire is going to make the blindest bit of difference to anything that's happening in the Middle East. And so holding the line that he holds uh, gives him a, a sort of air of consistency and statesmanship, even though it is going to profoundly upset a lot of people. It's, it's Keir Starmer once again making a decision, sticking to it, and then perhaps uncommonly in the current climate of British politics, really being prepared to explain it at length and in depth to people that he seeks to persuade. Of course, he sought to persuade Jess Phillips and seven other shadow ministers and, and, and a bunch of backbenchers. He did not succeed in persuading them, but he tried and he did so, I think, respectfully and in most cases face to face. Now, you've written a lot in this book, James, how they broke Britain about Boris Johnson, the people around him. The recent COVID inquiry possibly wasn't a great surprise to you. But should (laughs) people be shocked about what went on? No, they shouldn't, but they will be. I mean, it's extraordinary, really, the gulf between the journalism that surrounded Boris Johnson from supportive newspapers, to put it very, very mildly, and what was pretty close to crystal clear to to anybody who was paying attention. I I, I mean, a betrayal of the British public by the people that are supposed to both speak truth to power and keep us informed of of almost unprecedented magnitude, because, you you, you know, you knew that they hadn't looked after care homes properly. You knew that Johnson was talking about letting the bodies pile high or letting COVID run through the population. And therefore, you shouldn't have been shocked that he was making comments about the uh, the pointlessness of making young people suffer just to keep old people alive for a little bit longer. The, the man's, I mean, borderline sociopathic, I think. And so the, the pearl clutching and the sharp intakes of breath coming from corners of the media that were until very, very, very recently claiming that he got all the big calls right were, were deeply disingenuous, uh, to say the least. But I, I think, I mean, even his harshest critics would probably be once again surprised by the full extent of his moral delinquency. But we're, we're, we're kind of used to that. You take key figures in the book, including Johnson, Cameron, Rupert Murdoch, Liz Truss and former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. And you kind of dissect what led to Brexit. So how did they break Britain? It's not just Brexit. Brexit is kind of one of the things that happened as a consequence of the creation of an ecosystem that that was partly deliberate and partly accidental um so and, and that's essentially what broke britain it's a it's a departure from tradition a departure from standards from 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 accountability and in some ways even from from reality you know the fact that johnson could claim he'd got all the big calls right or that he hadn't known about any parties when he'd literally been at them that that ability to and and brexit of course being built entirely upon lies, both in 2016 and then in the general election in 2019. So I identify three ways, three engines of change that have sort of converged on the same ground and not by any master plan or anything like that, but but just by a sort of aligning 
of the political planets. There's there's right wing media, which in the UK now is absolutely out of control. It's I mean it's absolutely ridiculous. Boris Johnson walks out of Downing Street in complete disgrace and gets given half a million pounds a year to write a column for the Daily Mail. So you don't need me to illustrate any further how completely um, uh, incestuous that that network has become. Then you've got the far right or the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe of the Tory party, which is now in charge. You saw Nigel Farage dancing at the Tory party conference with Priti Patel. And that's not just some aberration. That is a, a demonstration of just how far the Tory party has moved towards space that used to be occupied by the British National Party and and UKIP. So you see evidence of that now in the news every day, not least with the Rwanda plan that we spoke of earlier. And the third bit, and in some ways perhaps the, the least understood and the most, therefore, the most interesting, is the proliferation. And forgive me, I don't know if you've got the equivalent of this in Ireland. I don't think you have. The proliferation of, of secretly funded lobby groups um, masquerading as think tanks. They give themselves fancy names that sound academic and, and fancy job titles that sound authoritative. But effectively, they, they might as well be six formers who, who've just signed up to some uh, color by numbers understanding of libertarianism or free market economics. And they, over the last 30 or 40 years, have genuinely and, and demonstrably infiltrated every single level of the UK media and the Tory party, culminating in Liz Truss becoming prime minister and a, and a conservative commentator tweeting that the um, that, that Downing Street had become an incubator for the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is one of these secretly funded lobby groups masquerading as a think tank, perhaps the most influential, and the and the and the so-called Director General, because they never give themselves normal normal job titles. The so-called Director General of that outfit tweets back an, uh, an emoji wearing sunglasses, as if to say, "Yeah, yeah, you're right. Look at us, aren't we incredible?" And and that's insane because. The, the, the formulation of policy by people who don't tell you who's paying them or whose interests they're acting in is pretty close to the antithesis of, of, of democracy. So if these people, James, you write about broke Britain, how mm. do you fix it? And who's going to fix it? Well, that's the, that's the million-dollar question. Um, it, it, well, the, the first thing, I think, to say is that, albeit that the last few years, and I'd take this from Johnson getting his hands on the leadership of the Tory party in 2019, have been uh, uh, unbelievably awful. That, you know, the things that have gone on are egregious, not just his personal conduct, but also the attitude to, for example, when Owen Paterson, a Conservative MP, was found to have broken parliamentary rules by lobbying, again, for, for, for people that were paying him. The response of Boris Johnson and his friends in the media and Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and a small coterie of, of, of conservatives of a very, uh, a very certain hue. They responded not by telling their friend to take his medicine to, to, to deal with it and, uh, and atone for his sins. They, they responded to it by trying to get him off the hook while setting fire to the rule book. So the first step back towards normality or the first fixing of the fractures is, is, is very, very simple. And it just involves returning to a place where rules matter, where minister, prime ministerial advisors, the independent advisor on ministerial uh, standards to the prime minister, if he reports that a cabinet minister is a bully, as Alexander Allen did with Priti Patel, then the prime minister goes back to disciplining and sacking 
that cabinet minister, not what's happening his mates, as Boris Johnson did, saying, let's form a square around the Pritster. So the first thing to re-establish is the very basic relationship between actions and consequences, between, you know, malfeasance and punishment. And I think Keir Starmer's already doing that. You see that with the way he deals with uh, wrongdoing on, on, on in his own party. He, he's very, very swift to suspend. And so that's quite easy. And then I think of Amber Rudd quite often, uh, oddly, <laughs> because mm-hmm. it, it wasn't that long ago that she resigned twice in the space of a couple of years. The first time because she made a mistake in the House of Commons that wasn't her fault, but she took responsibility for it. And the second time in 2019 from Boris Johnson's government in protest at what he was doing. He was chucking out all the moderates, anyone prepared to tell the truth was being culled from the party by Johnson and Cummings. And Amber Rudd resigned not just as business secretary, but also she resigned the conservative whip. So so individual acts of principle by individual politicians can help bring us back to a, a modicum or a semblance of normality and then a more institutional return to subscription to rules, regulations and standards can, can affect it as well. So you've still got You've still got the problems of the media. You've still got the problems of the think tanks. But the actual breaking of what we are supposed to be and who we are supposed to be, the the, the biggest fractures, I think, can be filled in. The book, it's powerful. It's also scathing, James. I know anger is something. You talk about a lot. You've been to therapy. <laughs> I'm lucky enough to have interviewed you a couple of times before about this. But people, I suppose, are entitled to be angry about Brexit. They're entitled to be angry at the COVID inquiry. So what's the difference, do you think, between, say, good anger and toxic anger? Evidence, I think, probably. I think, uh, you know, righteous, righteous fury at people who are lying to you or or leading you into unnecessary danger as opposed to unevidenced anger against Polish lorry drivers or Afghans in dinghies. And, of course, the people responsible for leading us into danger, the people responsible for uh, um, turning lying into, into political normality are the same people injecting poison into public discourse and trying to turn the population against the Polish lorry drivers or the... Uh, or the Afghans in dinghy. So, so you, you know, both angers are real, but one is built in reality and one is very carefully cultivated by people who benefit from anger built on, on things that aren't really worth getting angry about. Can I ask you, it's a non-political interview you did some years back. You had a really long chat with Friends actor Matthew Perry. You must have been quite shocked to hear about his death. Yeah, I, I mean, surprisingly shocked, actually, Miriam. And, 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 and still, I think some public figures, whether you've met them or not, they, they fill a space inside you that you don't fully appreciate the size of until, until they die. And, of course, if they die prematurely and, and unexpectedly, you've you got the sort of added dimension of shock. And I, 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 I just really liked him. I, I, you know how it is. Sometimes you feel you make a connection with interviewees. Sometimes, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they're going through the motions. But there was a heaviness to him, a kind of psychic heaviness to him that really reminded me of George Michael, who who I also had the pleasure of interviewing not 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 long before he died. And and I can't shake the sense that they were both suffering similarly from from the contradiction of bringing enormous joy to enormous numbers of people without being able to find much in their own lives. And, and I find that really poignant. Like, yeah, I've been surprised by how moved I have been by it all, actually. Mm. Like a lot of people, I think. Like a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. 
unlike, of course, uh, Nigel Farage, who you famously <laughs> interviewed. In fact, he stormed out of your studio. What do you think from taking part in I'm a Celebrity following on from Matt Hancock? Uh, I try not to think about it at <laughs> all, to be honest with you. But, um, but you can't, can you? Avoid it. I, it it's... it's, it's I, well, he's not a serious person. He, he never has been a serious person. He, he, he's, a, he's a vain attention seeker who... Uh, is also, of course, an Enoch Powell tribute act. But part of the consequences of the breaking of Britain is is that um, those sort of views, which had been uh, consigned to the dustbin of disgrace for, for for decades, have now been taken out again, dusted down, and and reintroduced into um, into polite society. So, on a personal level, for him, I can understand why he's done it. There's apparently quite a lot of money on the table, and he gets to be the centre of attention. From ITV's point of view, I think it's actually a very unfortunate decision. I, I think that you, there's a great word that a younger colleague introduced me to the other day, you fun wash things. Mm. You, 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 you sanitise fairly rancid individuals by putting them in fairly fun-filled scenarios. And, and I think that Farage is probably going to get a bit fun-washed by ITV, which is, uh, which is, is, is a shame for everybody. Well, look, I loved your book, James. It's oh, called thank you, How They Broke Britain by James O'Brien. It's published by WH Allen. Once again, lovely to chat to you, James. Mind yourself. Always a pleasure. You too.